0: Uh, i'm excited to continue our series we've called good which is actually walking through the book of titus which is a book in your new testament that is a correspondence a private correspondence between Paul, a early church leader who was over many churches, missionary uh, after Jesus died and resurrected, and it's to Titus, one of his protégés who was leading a church in on an island called Crete, which is uh, right uh, one of the Greek islands to this day, remains, uh, and uh, there's some of the remains and uh, architecture from back then that you can go see that would have been where Titus was walking. And this uh, church in Crete, Paul was telling Titus, here's some specific things to make make uh, his environment between his church and the city uh, better. And so the word good we're using to talk about uh, this letter because the, the word is very, you know, I know it's very vague sometimes and can mean different things, but in the biblical sense, this is a rich, deep word about uh, really providing a beautiful environment for faith to work. The first week uh, was an introduction. The second week, last week, Ryan talked about uh, forming a good church, What does it mean to have a good church? And today, we're going to talk about having good relationships, but the avenue through which good relationships happen, which is through God's grace. And so we're going to tackle chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, head to Titus chapter 2 or open it in your app. We also have the verses in your handouts and on the screen. But as you're jumping there, let me pray. Father God, we look to you and ask you, God, to shape us and to change us by the power of your spirit through your living and active word. I pray that I would just be able to be in service of that process and in partnership with that process. Please, God, take us out of it. Take our, um, our pride. Take our um, preconceived notions, Lord, and, and, and silence those so that we might hear from you. And so I pray, God, that um, I would be faithful and that you would use my words, but also, God, that we would be faithful together in hearing your word. And so help us with that, in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Man, I wanted nothing more uh, heading into my freshman year of high school than to make the basketball team. Uh, I wanted nothing more. I was, like, obsessed with basketball, and I still had the dream that I would be tall. (laughs) That dream is dead. God has helped me. But when I was 13, I was like, maybe I could be tall one day, you know? Maybe I could play basketball. You still have hope. And I was like, maybe I could still do this. And so I, I was like really focused. Going into freshman year, I wanted to make one of the teams, right? Freshman, JV, varsity. Our school that I was in had just gone through an amazing season of like they won two championships in the last two years. And I was like thinking this was going to be my destination. I, I, I thought it was going to be incredible. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a Catholic school. I had grown up in the Catholic school uh, and the church, and uh, they they had kind of like made tryouts that year really really early, which is a very Catholic thing. I feel like it was like the monks were up at five. Why can't you be up at five thirty? Let's do this. Uh, so it was like really early tryouts. But I had worked all summer and prepared for the, that morning that I was waking up. You see, in the summer earlier on, I was playing video games in my basement as one does when he's thirteen. My father knocks on the door. On the door, he's like, "Hey." He opens it up, I'm like, hey. He's like, can you do a left handed lay in? I was like, no. Why, dad? That's my teenager voice. Uh, he goes, well, do you think that other high school kids who play on the high school team can make a layup with their left hand? I was like, probably. And then he goes, okay. He just shuts the door. That's kind of how my dad rolled. Uh, well, then I practice every day on this left handed layup. Like, I was just like, he's right. I've got to be able to do, like, my own effort, I got to be able to do what the other guys on the team can do, or else I don't have a shot at this team, so I was, like, working all summer, and the day of the tryout come, the morning of the tryout come, I, I have to get up really early, I think the tryout started at 5 30 in the morning, I'm not kidding, my school started at, like, 7 30, it was ridiculous, I'm up really early, but it's so early, and I'm so nervous that I don't eat or drink anything, I just, like, wake up and go, um, The other thing about me is like, okay, I'm not a large person right now. I'm small, but imagine me smaller at 13, okay? And then also, it just helps with the visual. I had like long hair uh, to like my shoulders, so I really looked like a little girl. Um, But I I had stuff going on in my life. I don't know. I was just like, I didn't look the part, okay? So, but I had the confidence because I'm like 13 and I don't know any better. So I'm just like... I'm going to roll in. I didn't eat or drink, which I hear is bad for you when you're starting to work out. Um, so I like show up to this tryout and the moment comes, the left-handed lay-in drill. Like we all have to form a line. Uh, if you've ever been in basketball or whatever and everybody's making these left-handed layups and I'm like dribbling, getting ready to go and I'm like, ooh, I don't feel very good. I'm like, I, I, I feel a little, little bad right now. Like, I don't know what's going on. So my time comes and what I remember was taking a dribble and then waking up on the ground for the entire tryout squad, which was probably 100 guys, and the coaching staff surrounding me just staring at me. And the coach goes, hey, bud, you fell. And what had happened, what they saw was that I had passed out mid layin. I had planted my foot raised up the left leg, perfect form, with the, with the left hand, and then ragdolled in the middle and just fell to the ground. It was the most humiliating you can imagine. Great way to start off the high school career, by the way. Just, like, solid. No, it was the most, one of the most humiliating moments ever. I went through the rest of the days of tryouts just, like, not caring. I didn't care. I was just like, I have lost. You don't pass out, okay, on day one of tryouts and make the team. Just if you have kids and stuff, like don't give them that advice, okay? You don't pass out day one of the tryouts and then make the team. It just does not happen. I was eliminated. I felt like I was done, but I just went through the rest of the tryouts because my dad convinced me, he's like, hey, you just kept a commitment, keep that commitment. I was like, fine, dad, you know, went through it. The day after the tryout, I'm walking around the corner, I got my friend John rounds the corner and he goes, Dude, congrats. Congratulations. He's like, dude, you made the freshman team. I was like, dude, shut up, you know, I was like, don't, don't mess with me, okay, I've had the worst last couple days, uh, my dream of becoming, like, the first five-foot-nothing NBA player is over um, with long hair, uh, but I was, I was just, like, I was crushed, he convinces me, no, come over, look at the piece of paper, and we walk over there, around the corner, and there was my name on the freshman team, I had made the team, I was like, what, I made this team, I, it was a profound moment of, like, I do not deserve this, and here's what I learned was that for the rest of that year, I, you guys, I, try, I put in more effort to that team than any other team I'd ever put effort on because here's the deal. I was on a team I didn't deserve to be on. I knew that team did not i didn't deserve that spot there was a profound act of grace that someone had or in my mind right i don't know maybe i did well in the rest of the trials but from my perspective i go i don't deserve this spot on this team but because i'm on this team i'm going to outwork everybody and i worked harder than anybody through that whole season because i taught i was taught something that actually grace when you feel like you don't deserve something it actually motivates you in a unique way to where you can do things you wouldn't normally do Because you might imagine there were some guys on that team who thought they should have made JV. There were guys on the team that thought they should have made varsity and they were making the freshman squad. They were putting in very minimal effort through that year because they had an air of like, I deserve this. I think I should be somewhere else. I was like, dude, I got a jersey. I got the tear off pants. Okay, I'm I'm like, I'm going hard this season. And I did, and here's what I learned. I learned that grace is a motivator to us. And this is what the Christian life is like. You see, you and I, if you have become a Christian or you are trusting in Jesus, you have been put on a team you don't deserve to be put on. You have been placed, because of God's activity in your life, You didn't earn anything, but he has placed you on a team you don't deserve to be on. This is important because we've been talking about this through Titus. And as we jump to this section, this is our leading thought, that God's grace leads to good living, not the other way around. The guys who put all of their effort in thought they deserved more. Right? But when, from my perspective, I was like, I can't believe I'm on this team. And it made me work harder than I've ever worked in my life. You see, grace leads to good living, not the other way around. So look at what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. We're going to cover the whole chapter, but let's start at the end because like his thesis statement is there. And I think if we get his thesis statement and then round back to the beginning, we'll have a better understanding of this chapter. Tri- Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Now here's a key word I want you to think about in in verse 12. Training us. The grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all uh, uh, lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a team. To purify for himself a team, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he tells Titus, he goes, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. God's grace leads to good living. If you look at verses 11 and 12 up on the screen and in your notes or on your Bible, man, it says God's grace has appeared and it is training us. I'm an English major. That word is in the present active tense, which is important. Because God's grace is not something you experience once, it's something that you are empowered by every day. You see, God's grace is not something that happened in the past. It's not a past tense. It once trained you. Yeah, and you're all trained. You got all the training and now you just live the good life. No, it is constantly working in your life. That is the present active tense. It is today, right here, Sunday. It is training you to live a godly life. God's grace is not something that you experience at conversion, just one time. It's something that you are empowered by every day. God's grace empowers you every day. Sometimes we think about God's grace. We think about it like in terms of Amazing Grace, the song, right? I was blind, but now I see. Was lost, but now I found. And grace was just this thing over here. But you know, there's another verse in that song that goes like this: Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home.'" So grace operated, God's favor operated in my life. He put me on the team. But also, he's constantly empowering me, and he'll lead me home. There's three tenses to this idea of grace that it it happens to us at one moment where we realize, man, we've been put on this team. God put us on this team we don't deserve. But it also trains us in the present day to renounce ungodliness and to be empowered to live a godly life. Here's the deal, guys. God's grace, his unearned activity in your life, it motivates you. It motivates us. And grace is actually the best motivator for human behavior. That's why Paul, he has another letter to another protege named Timothy as two of them. To other, uh, he's just much like Titus. And in 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, he actually tells Timothy, this other protege of his, he says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul is commanding his apprentices To be strengthened by God's grace, to be thinking every day, man, I can't believe I am on a team that I don't deserve to be on. And that should motivate you to a new type of life. Motivating you to a new type of life. Grace is the best motivator, it's the best fuel. But so many of us, myself included, we go off of these bad motivators. Or or maybe even more strongly put, they're deadly motivators. Deadly, deadly motivators that can actually lead you down really bad paths of destruction. I think about religion is actually a bad motivator. We're in church right now. We can talk about this. Religion is not a good motivator. See, religion switches the order. We're going to talk about this in a second. Religion switches the order, says um, you have to live a good life and then receive God's grace. Yeah, you work really hard, then you get put on the team. No, see, the gospel is scandalous. It says you've been put on the team. And you go, what? And you're amazed and you wake up to the reality of God's goodness in your life and that produces a good life. But religion is this different motivator. Shame, how about shame? Another terrible, terrible motivator, but all of us sneak into that, right? Shame, I can just say two words about this. Social media. Oh, someone's doing this and I'm not. I'm not living a good life. I've got to live a better life because this person's doing this and I'm not. This person's living their best life and I'm not. This person's living their truth, and I'm not. Whatever social media phrases are out there right now. I mean, they're ridiculous, and they motivate us poorly, and we end up getting exhausted. Money is another bad motivator. You never have enough of it. Sometimes you have it, sometimes you don't, but if it fuels you and if it motivates you, it, it'll burn you out. How about your ego? Your, our own ego, it constantly motivates us and gets us in the way that we have to be this kind of person, that we deserve this kind of, right? It's kind of like that, that position some of the guys were on my team who thought they should have made JV. They're like, hmm, well, I'm going to be one of the best players on this team because I should be on another team. I should be up a notch, right? That's the ego sneaking in. I mean, there's so many other ones, right? How about fear? Fear. Fear. I mean, so much of what we decide to do is to keep us in a safe place and and, and react to some fear. You may not know this, but everything I'm talking to you about right now, it has to do with this word doctrine. I know it's a very churchy word, but everything I'm talking to you about right now and everything Paul is going to say to Titus is an issue of Doctrine. Here's what I mean. Doctrine means teaching and right teaching, right? Theology, that this is actually a very important part of the Christian life because here's what Paul will try to drive home, right? He's saying that this order that God's grace leads to good living is essential. And he's telling Titus, don't lose this. Don't mix up the order. Make sure you know your people and you yourself are to be motivated by grace and nothing else. Motivated by the unearned activity of God in your life and nothing else. That's why he'll say at the end in Titus 2, 15, he says, declare and teach these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. But now let's jump back to the beginning of the letter, Titus 2, verse 1, because we just read his thesis statement, kind of at the end, his summarizing statement, but here's how he starts it in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, but as for you, saying, Titus, you're gonna be different than the, the Cretan teachers. As for you, teach what accords with sound Doctrine. In other words, Titus, the order is super essential. And you have to make sure you understand that God's grace has appeared and that's training us for godliness, and we're not training it for godliness so that God's grace might appear. The order is so essential. I, I remember living a, a lot of my life mixing that order up. Have you mixed that order up? Have you ever been there where you think you're working to get on God's team? Man, I told you, part of my, my story is, is with the Catholic Church, and man, I had an amazing experience in, in, in the Catholic Church in so many ways, and a lot of my friends to this day are faithful Catholics who get the order really, really right, maybe better than I do. They're filled with Jesus and God's Spirit, but in my experience, when I was growing up young, I didn't understand that. I, was, I felt like I was taught through my experience that I got to be good, and then God will give me grace, that, that I, I've got to get the order of my life correctly, and then God will bless me, as opposed to what the gospel says, right? Someone then in my life, when I was about in high school, started to share the, the, the gospel of this book and of Titus chapter 2 with me, that God's grace has appeared to me, and that I had the order wrong all along. You see, my good living would never, I couldn't live a good enough life to lead to God's grace. And God was so gracious and so loving that He already worked in my life. You see, and maybe some of you are here, you've been spending so much time in your life stressing about making the team when you already are wearing the jersey. You've been stressing so much about being a good person when God has already made Himself the good person for you on your behalf. That Jesus Christ came, died for you, and in a profound act of grace made you, in Titus, in the words of Paul to Titus, a people for his own possession. A team. He's already welcomed you in. Now we got to play, though. <laughs> you see, it's very common for us when we get trapped in religion and we switch the order and doctrine is not correct, for us to constantly be working to no end. When we get the order right, we realize there's a game to play. And we get to play it freely. Man, we're on this team and it's not because of anything we did. And so it's gonna motivate us because we believe we didn't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to be Christians. We don't deserve to be followers of Jesus. Man, we don't deserve to be people of compassion and grace and mercy, but God has qualified us. And we get to now serve and live in that kind of way. God's grace changes us, right? It, it changes us. When we get that order right, we are blind, but now we see. We are lost, and then we're found. And then God's grace begins to train us. It begins to work in us. And God's grace changes us. Paul talked talk about two major ways. The first way is in who we are, which is our character. God's grace changes who we are, and it also changes what we do, our work. We'll tackle each one by one. First, God's grace changes who we are, our very character. Look at what he says, Titus 2, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, they're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure Working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So be careful in this section about character, be careful to not be distracted by two major things you probably read and you were like, whoa. One is age, and the second is gender. We have to remember this was written not to us, but for us, right? It was written to other people in another time in another place. We still receive a tremendous amount of truth, but we have to do some work bridging the gap of the ancient society this was written in, and modern day that we live in today. Oftentimes age, we look at this and we go older. I mean, particularly our church, we have a lot of young people. You might just think, oh, I'm not an older man or an older woman, so I'll be in the younger person category. But one, age was very, very different back then. People didn't live as long as they live today. And two, we all know that there are uh, 40-year-olds that act 19. And there are 19-year-olds that act way above their age. Right? Age does, it's not about a particular age, right? Paul is calling all Christians young and old to maturity, which is very different than age. We all know that, right? I mean, it's very different, very, very different. Second thing to not be distracted by is is the gender piece in here, because it can appear that Paul is now painting a broad brushstroke of which all Christian doctrine should rest. But remember, this is one part of the Bible and one particular part of the Bible. In other places of Scripture, namely in the Old Testament, particularly in the book book of Proverbs, these gender, quote-unquote, gender roles are actually reversed. You see, in the book of Proverbs, it was written for older men to walk their sons through and instructing them on how to be young men. And at the end, in Proverbs 30 and 31, there's actually a picture of the woman and the women of the house out in the city gates providing the business and political affairs of the home. And the men are back at home training and instructing the children because they're working on farmland and there is an agricultural society. And so it wasn't as strict as we might think it was. Be careful not to read into this American culture. Be, be careful to know how wide and deep scripture is, but also how drenched it is in its own Culture. Also, secondly, Paul was responding to particular things, uh, at particular events within the church, okay? Namely, and um, Ryan talked about this in the last two weeks, the culture of Crete was wily, okay? The women were out at night ignoring their families in Crete, and Titus was saying, What should I do? And he's instructing them with these words to a particular group of people at a particular place at a particular time respond all of these letters in your new testament on correspondence were responses to complaints that paul was fielding so he was giving particular instruction to a particular place and we can't always take particular instruction to a particular place it it doesn't always work this way but we can't take it all the way we got to take the whole biblical theology got to take the whole building block of it and paul knew that the men in crete were getting drunk so he's like Don't get drunk, right? He knew that there was a big problem of alcohol in there, and so he called people to be sober-minded. Here's the thing. Paul is desiring, look at verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. That's the key. Paul was saying, in light of living in a crazy Crete culture, in light of living in a crazy island culture in the Middle East, I'm going to call older men and older women to this kind of life because it's messing with our witness, and if the men are getting drunk and the women are ignoring their families and the men are ignoring their families, we're not going to have a witness because guess what? We're going to look just like Crete. We're going to look just like the culture we're saturated in as opposed to looking different. And Paul's call is to not malign the word of God because he knew what you and I should know right now. Our message is a little scandalous. Our gospel is scandalous. Look, religion's not scandalous. Religion says, you do good things, God will love you. That kind of makes sense to Western culture. Yeah, i got to be a good person, then God will love me. Like, that's the religion we've been saturated in. But for us to say that we are wicked in and of ourselves, and there's nothing we can do to earn God's love, but God has already given us his love in Jesus, that'll shock the Silicon Valley. (laughs) The Silicon Valley who wants to work for the promotion the Silicon Valley that wants to be educated to be impressive, the gospel says all are equal. The gospel says there is nothing you can do. And so because our message is scandalous, our character must be solid. We cannot be living the way everyone else lives. We cannot be involved in the same things everyone's involved in. And so while Cretan culture may overlap a little bit with 21st century American culture, there is some overlap there. Our character must be solid. Notice the words Paul uses, self-controlled, pure, submissive, kind. These are words of character traits. And this is the kind of thing Paul is saying, the gospel builds this into you. Don't miss this. God's grace is training you into this, and this is what people of the gospel do. This is what people at awakening do, is we don't teach people how to be good. We teach people how to love God and love each other. We teach people how to respond to God's activity in their life. That's what discipleship is. That's what teaching is. And so let me ask you, don't miss the point of this. Older, younger, whatever age you are, wherever you're at, man or woman, who is teaching you and who are you teaching? Because for all of us in our different seasons of life, like it, it, we can think of ourselves, ooh, I should be teaching. or No, 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 we should actually be doing both. Someone who's instructing you, who are you learning from, and who are you instructing? And see, at Awakening, we have so many avenues for this. I mean, you walk around our campus, you see the babies and the toddlers and the kids' ministry and the youth ministry. Man, how many of you can start to teach in those areas? Because God has given you just a, a certain level of life. You might think you're too young, I would argue you're not. And can I talk to those of you who are in an older season? We need you. We are a young church, and we need wisdom. Man, I've been here six weeks, I can already tell you. We need wisdom. We need people who can instruct the younger men and younger women in character. Not in in advice, not in self-help, but in how you develop a godly character. And I know some of you are wearing the jersey but on the bench, and God says, you're on my team. Man, and, and it's time to jump in. It's time to serve. It's time to engage into ministry. This is where God can take us as a church. I know, the, think about the, the men's and the women's ministries here. The, the, the studies and the MCs that go on. There's a men's study at, on Thursday morning at 6.30 in the morning. There's some of you older men that's like, you got to jump in on that because there's some young guys in there that need older men to just train them in character. And, and some of you young guys need to show up because there's younger guys there. And maybe you're like me, you still think you're young, but then you're like, well, look around at Awakening, you're like, yeah, I'm not really that young. <laughs> we gotta jump in. God's grace is leading us to good living. And it changes our character. And so walk along some other people and help you. I Man, I was so encouraged, I gotta share this. Just after the first service, a woman walked up to me on the way out. She goes, hey, thanks, thanks for your message. Your message got me thinking about youth leaders in my life that were super important when I was in high school and junior high. It's like, I just signed up to serve in youth ministry. I was like, that is the simple, like, don't overthink this sermon. That's the simple obedience of someone who goes, God's done something great in my life. Pass it on. <laughs> just keep moving. Just keep walking alongside people. I know there's some of you in this room that need to hear that. God changes our character. He also changes what we do. Not just who we are, but what we do. And that's our work. Paul's gonna address our work life. And he's gonna use this word bondservant and master, but I'll explain to you in a second. You have to read it more as employee and employer based off of cultural baggage that's within this passage. Look at Titus 2, verse nine. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, not stealing, uh, but showing all good faith so that in everything, I love this line, in everything they may adorn or dress up or make beautiful the doctrine of God our savior. One leads to another. When our character is transformed, our work will be transformed. When God changes us inside, it changes what's outside. And I think some of you may need to hear this because I know a lot of you guys work really intense jobs and you're, you're successful and smart people. Oftentimes we want God to change the outside and then the inside. We want God to change our boss, our job, our employee situation, our relationships at work, and then we'll be a good person. It doesn't work that way. God wants us to work from the inside out, not the outside in. God is actually doing something in your heart right now that when you work with someone who's difficult, he's more engaged and uh, focused on your character than anything else. He wants to teach you how to be humble. He wants to teach you how to be patient and kind. And and that's going to come from the inside out. And guess what? It's a lot harder. Okay, I know. (laughs) I'm sorry. It is, though. It's way easier to go outside in, but man, something always is better if it's done with more care and it's harder, right? And God's character, God develops our character so that we might be better for it and not get out from under some of the work he's doing. Who we are is manifested in what we do. When he talks about this bondservant relationship, that word is the word doulos, and actually Paul, it's not a defamatory or derogatory term. Again, just like with gender roles and different things like that, Paul was writing thousands of years ago in a different situation. He had no idea who any of you were. And frankly, I don't think he cared. But he was writing this to a particular culture. And in Cretan culture and in ancient Near Eastern culture, bondservanthood was a very common and... uh, you know, easy thing to get in and out of. It wasn't anything like, if you're thinking about servant, master, and anything like that from an American perspective, 17th century slave trade, it was nothing like that. This is 1,700, 1,600 years before any of that in a different part of the world where it wasn't for life, it wasn't for no pay. It was actually a really good option for a lot of people. And it engaged people with actually a really long and fruitful life. And so look at how Paul is addressing more employee-employer relationships of, hey, make sure you're not stealing, make sure you're not cutting corners, be kind in all things. And he says in verse 10, so that in everything, this is the point, it's just like the point with um, men and women at home and in the church. The point is the same in verse 10. So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God. They may make the gospel of God look beautiful. That the gospel would look great. You see, we've said this in the series. How we live reveals the goodness of the gospel how you live Monday through Saturday, Monday through Friday at work, that reveals the goodness of the gospel. And Paul is saying, man, employees, employers, make sure that your activity at work is a reflection of what God's doing in you because that is going to shape and change the witness of our gospel in this world. And do I need to even give you examples of how that's gone wrong? (laughs) That We've messed up the order and that we've rearranged this to where our witness in the world is that we're moralists When in all actuality, we have a god of great grace who's creating himself a people for his own possession and we live out of that grace I think about a couple of people who do this so well in my life One one is is actually my mom. She works in retail Which would drive me crazy because i'm like it's clothes you wear them and she's like no chris you're missing it all it's an invitation to the discussion of beauty and value. She's a Christian. She goes, I get to talk with these women and help them and talk with my coworkers about helping them. And we don't see clothes and flesh and people, we see souls, we see hearts. And so my mom views her whole work as this like mission field. Oh my gosh, she had a Bible study once with like all these people from her retail work and everything. It was just like so cool. She shares the gospel with people, but most of the time she shares the gospel at the end because her life is the gospel. Because you know what my mom does? In, in, a, in a cutthroat world of retail where the prices matter and the money matters and the sales, the sales are everything, my mom lives in such a way From my perspective, I see this, she'd be way more humble and be like, I'm not perfect at this, but man, from my perspective, my mom sees the sales and everything as important, but the people much more important and the way she acts at work way more important. She will not be the one to lie about sales. She will not be the one to inflate the numbers. She will not be the one to lie or cover up a lie. She's gonna live in the way of Titus too and be self-controlled and kind, pure. Some of these words that, Paul uses are really tough, and they might feel vague, but I want them to sit in our hearts this morning. Is that who we are at work? Is that who we are at home? Is that the kind of people God is developing us to be? Because, see, I've been a pastor for 10 years, and people say, Chris, I'm super nervous about, like, telling people I'm a Christian at work or talking to people about my faith. And I say, that's okay. What are you preaching right now? And they're like, well, I'm not preaching anything. I go, no, 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 just by your life. Like, just by how you're living and being at work, like, what kind of life are you preaching? What kind of reputation do you have at work? Because you know what? If you're a really solid person with a really great reputation and a humble character, people listen to you. Be- people are, like, open, and they're like, well, why are you so joy-filled? Why are you, right? And, and it has you engaged. If you're a student on campus, like, that will change you if you are pure and self-controlled and humble. Three words college kids are normally not described as. It gives you a whole new witness. It gives you the whole, this whole new perspective on how you might be able to speak to someone. I, my friend John, he was in this really bad work environment because some of you might be there, Chris, that sounds good, but you don't know my boss. Like you don't know my situation. And I always think about my friend John when people tell me that because he had really the, one of the worst work experiences and, and seasons I've ever seen. He, he got this new boss. This new boss was threatening to him he began manipulating circumstances to make John look bad. He lied to John and then lied again to cover up that first lie. And then he would constantly arrange situations to set up John to fail and John would fail publicly. He was a bad, bad boss. And so what do you do in that kind of situation? I knew John was this remarkable man and I knew that the, the work situation he left, that he was still friends with those people. I said, John, what did you do? He goes, Chris, I learned something. That in every decision I made, I could not think, how would someone, you know, how how would I do this as an employee? I had to think, how would I do this as a Christian? Because he was manipulated, lied against, betrayed. And then he thought, what happened to Jesus? Jesus was betrayed. And how did he respond? Jesus was lied to and manipulated against and conspired. Had conspiracies against him. And what was his reaction? To stand up for himself? No. Surprisingly, it was to lay his life down, even for his enemies. My friend John, you see, he didn't preach the gospel, but he lived it out. And then he was able to share it with me and share it with so many people. He said, Chris, I was able, surprisingly, he's like, it was a surprise to me, but I was able to shake every hand of every person except for one, my boss, and it was because I extended it, and he didn't reach back. He said, I learned something, and, and John taught this to me in a very Titus Two way. He's 10 years older than me, so he's a little older man to younger man kind of situation. He taught me this. He said, Chris, I learned that Americans are obsessed with defending their reputation, and that's not how it works. You see, you don't defend your reputation. Your reputation defends you. And the most surprising thing a Christian will ever encounter is to keep their head down, be a person of character, and one day be surprised that they don't have to defend themselves. Because the gospel has been buried so deep in their life that it starts to produce fruit. And what I got to see in John was a life that lived out the gospel in the hardest circumstances. That's how beautiful Christianity can be. is when a group of people don't have to stand up for their rights. They can lay them down. A group of people doesn't have to defend, quote unquote, the church. They can live as a sacrifice for the unchurched. I mean, what a compelling vision for humanity. You see, how John lived revealed the goodness of the gospel to me. How we live reveals the goodness of the gospel. When Jesus was on earth, he constantly referred to his life as a mission and this mission he was on is clearly outlined in Titus chapter 2 verse 14 look at what paul says it says jesus gave himself for us he 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 didn't grab and gravitate towards moving everyone out and elevating himself he actually gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a team a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, God was creating a people not to sit, but to walk. God was creating a team not to sit on the bench, but to play the game. I'll warn you, there's a defense. There is another team. There is evil in this world. But we've been put on God's team You see, we don't put ourselves on God's side. He has welcomed us to his. And the way that God has worked through Jesus is to provide us this team. And here's the deal. It's now our turn to be zealous for good works. And some of you, man, I've been here many seasons. You're not passionate or zealous about doing good work. And hear me very clearly. Don't get the order wrong. Again, talk about sound doctrine. Don't get the order wrong. It is not about leaving today and going, I just got to get super passionate about being good. (laughs) You've missed the message. I want you to look at Jesus right now. This morning, as we worship, as we come to communion, look at Jesus. Be filled with God's grace and remember this. It's empowering you tomorrow to live a good life. So as the worship team comes forward and we're going to celebrate communion, which is the greatest reminder of grace. Communion should be your fuel in some ways propel you to live a new kind of life because in the bread, it it exemplifies the broken body of Jesus that he gave his life for you. And the juice represents the covenant, the new covenant, that the arrangement is different now, that no longer is it what you do that qualifies you for God, it's what Jesus has done that brings you into the fold of God. And when you partake communion, at least when I do, friends, it reminds me of God's grace in my life and propels me to be a better man. Only because of the work of God. And so, may we live in such a way that the gospel looks beautiful. Could we adorn the doctrine of God? This, man, God's grace leads to good living. Could we dress that up this week and make it beautiful as it actually is? It's gonna be a long process. It won't be quick, but I guarantee it will be good. Let's pray. God, we love you because you first loved us. And we, Lord, are qualified for good works because of your good work. Would you remind us of that? Holy Spirit, plant that seed into our life. I pray, God, that it would begin to bear fruit. For those of us in this room, my friends in this room who are struggling at home, God, give them grace to empower them. For those struggling at work, God, give them grace and empower them. We need you. We cannot do this alone. Doing it alone would be religion. It would be something else. Doing it with you is exactly what your scriptures are leading us to. And I pray, God, that you would do that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.